Welcome to Mind Love, episode 268. Today's episode is all about honoring ourselves and earth through indigenous wellness practices. Because of the fact that our knowledge systems and our teachings and our wisdom has been so marginalized and our people have been so horribly stereotyped, it starts with um, being able to acknowledge that we carry knowledge just as much as any other person from any other culture does, that we carry wisdom, that we carry teachings that help and contribute and make a difference in the world. And that are not only interesting, but are things that people need. Our parents' generation revitalized a lot. And so for our journey is to take what was brought for us while we were growing up, but also to find out what was what is no longer being practiced, but still lives within the memories and the know-how of a lot of knowledge keepers and elders in our community. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Isn't it funny how we have all this technology and progress to give us insight into things that we never had before? Yet somehow, all of the science and tech is just proving what the ancients already knew. It's happened with food and medicine and movement and nature. I said in a recent episode that it makes sense because long ago, there were less distractions. They had more time to ponder and gain insight instead of outsourcing it all to Google. Most of us can't even get to the local Walmart without turn-by-turn directions. (laughs) And that makes sense too. We're used to grabbing our device for all of the answers instead of looking within ourselves, or better yet, asking for insight from the original source of all things, whatever you believe that power to be. Now, our connection to nature is turning on the sprinklers. (laughs) Our connection to food is ordering our usual on Uber Eats. Our connection to community is scrolling through highlight reels on social. Our connection to spirit is Alexa. We're all doomed. So basically, we are more disconnected than ever from all the things that are truly important about existence. And then we wonder why we're sick and unhappy and triggered and lost. I've always been fascinated with indigenous culture. There's something deep within me that yearns to live off the land with no tech, my feet in the dirt, bathing in the river while somehow magically heating it. sowing my own oats. Indigenous history is the history of America, yet most of us know nothing about it besides the lies they taught us in social studies. And even when we did learn the tragic truth, I never understood the actual scale of the genocide, which we will get into in the episode. We lost their indigenous wisdom for a long time. In reality, it was stolen from us on purpose because if we knew our real power, we wouldn't need to rely so heavily on everything that's marketed to us. And guess what? 
the same people that eradicated our knowledge of herbalism and the healing powers of nature in order to take over the pharmaceutical market are also the main funders of Google, just in case you decide to Google if this is true. At least there's a thread to pull on for your next rabbit hole. Anyways, the truth is, this knowledge wasn't really lost, despite their best efforts. It was hidden and suppressed, but like all great wisdom, it carried on, passing down through generations, despite the trauma they incurred. So today we're reclaiming ancient wisdom and learning to honor our whole selves and the land we live on through native wellness philosophies and practices. Our guests are Chelsea Luger and Thosh Collins, a husband and wife duo and the co-founders of Well for Culture, an indigenous wellness initiative. They're also the co-founders of The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well, a book that shares ancestral teachings and indigenous ideas about health, wellness, and living in balance. So three key things we will learn are how different types of movement elicit different emotional responses and how to use them to move through our emotions, the symbolism of the medicine wheel and how it can remind us to view our healing holistically and how to heal our connection with ourselves and nature with reverence and ceremony. If there's one topic that keeps coming up in my women's circles, it's our hormones. Frankly, I think that between years of birth control or beauty products that mess with endocrine function, a lot of us are just out of whack. EstroControl is a formula developed by Happy Mammoth, a supplement company dedicated to making women's lives easier. It has science-backed herbal extracts that help support hormonal health, especially in women who suffer from PMS. The way EstroControl eases PMS is pretty interesting. The ingredients support the liver, and that's where our hormones get processed, especially estrogen. So when the estrogen isn't processed well in the liver, women may start having PMS, spots on the skin, they get cravings, they feel low all of a sudden. EstroControl was created to help women feel like themselves all throughout the month because PMS can basically rob us of a week of our lives every month. Totally not fair. EstroControl is made specifically for women who are premenopausal, so it's perfect for women that haven't entered menopause yet. And in fact, it's amazing for perimenopause when hormones start to fluctuate and PMS can turn into a beast. I have been relearning myself postpartum. I just started my period again when my baby was 10 months and I forgot how wild these hormone changes can be. I wanted something to just maintain optimal hormone levels and help with mild mood swings, and EstroControl is perfect for this. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com with promo code MINDLOVE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use promo code MINDLOVE for 15% off your first order. And now let's welcome Chelsea Luger and Thosh Collins to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what inspired you both to go back to your roots and share some of your indigenous wisdom? Well, um, growing up in our respective communities, uh, Chelsea being raised uh, on her reservation, the Turtle Mountain Chippewa people and, and, and around it, and myself growing up on my community, the Salt River Pima Maricopa community, a lot of what we wrote about in the Seven Circles are teachings uh, that we were we're raised with, and as we started to get older and travel throughout native country to different native communities and learn from other cultural leaders in other communities, we kind of, of course, we already knew the similarities between all of our nations, but we just, it was, it was reaffirming to see how all the different life ways and practices 
of those different people were similar to all of ours and how they contributed to their people thriving. And so it was for us, it's something that we was always there for us. But as we started to become older and and become more ingrained in dominant society, we seen that there was a need here to kind of pull these together and to make this like template for, for living well. And, you know, we also learn a lot from Western science and technology and uh, we read studies and a lot of them are proving what we as Native people have always known. So that's sort of how we came along to that. Absolutely. I think for myself, I was born and raised, you know, within my community and brought up with my spiritual and cultural teachings and values and ceremonies. And then kind of probably veered away from that for a time as a teenager and as a 20 something off to college and living in New York city and all that different stuff. And, you know, struggling as all adolescents do with figuring out life and figuring out who I am. And, you know, it was just when my wellness journey really began to take hold in my mid twenties, I couldn't think about anything I was learning in mainstream wellness without attaching it to the cultural teachings that I was raised with. And it became so clear to me that indigenous culture is wellness in so many ways. Our traditional values, our worldviews, our ways of life were so grounded and rooted in what people today are calling wellness. And so it was a really interesting and fun period of my life kind of connecting the dots and beginning to understand it in that way. And then um, that's how our work and eventually many years later, the book came to be. I find that the older I get, the really the deeper I got into wellness, you know, it started with all the surface level things that were marketed to me. And then the more <laughs> research that I did, I started feeling really called to holistic, more natural practices. It's what moved my husband and I out to the mountains. We were just feeling this calling to be closer to nature. But you bring up a really good point in the beginning of your book that it's fascinating, but also a missed opportunity that most Americans do know tidbits of health-oriented practices from other cultures, whether it's Higgy from Denmark, Feng Shui from China, yoga from India, but they don't actually know anything about the ancient wellness teachings directly from the land that they stand on. And the point that you bring up around that is that the ignorance isn't an accident. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so there's a long history of intentional erasure and stifling and uh, honestly, I would call it cultural genocide in the United States. Of course, that was a military effort and that was a governmental effort. And that was, you know, the church working hand in hand with those entities to stamp out Native culture. There was a long period of time where Indigenous cultural practices like ceremonies and songs and dances were not only frowned upon, but illegal, where a person could go to prison or die for practicing those and that actually didn't legally change until 1978. So Dosh and I both have those hardships in our history. Our grandparents, you know, not so long ago, that's how they were raised with being shamed and being um, punished for practicing or their culture or for speaking their languages. Um, that was through a system called boarding schools or in Canada, it's called residential schools. So all that is to say there is an intentional history of erasure of indigenous culture in the United States and in 
really all around the world in different ways. And wellness is just one piece of that and all teachings that are related to health and healing and, um, and living well is a part of that erasure. I am the type of person that goes down rabbit holes. And I remember years and years ago, it was one of the first rabbit holes that I went down. I think I was in college realizing that the history I had been taught about Native Americans was not even close to true. And mm. so it's something that, you know, my my snarky 20-year-old self would bring up at Thanksgiving, like, you know what we're celebrating, right? <laughs> or whatever it was. But, but yeah. in reading your book, I realized how little I still knew. I mean, it's not like I've deep studied it, but I try to bring awareness to it. And the part that I didn't know is I had no idea how vast the genocide was. I had no idea that it was there were 20 to 100 million indigenous people living in North America. And by 1900, there were only 200,000 left. That's mm -hmm. way larger. And maybe it is the images. Maybe that was the point of all those dumb coloring book activities we did in second grade where there's like 12 Native Americans at a table and 12 <laughs> pilgrims, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I, I knew about the genocide, but I did not know it to that scale. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. you're not alone in that. I mean, even ourselves as Native kids growing up, we're subjected to the same, you know, standard public school textbooks and stuff like that. And for us, like learning all this stuff happened outside of school. It happened because of what we would learn from our elders or our cultural leaders and our parents and what we would learn from reading books on our own and watching documentaries and going off to college. And even Native people, we have to make a very conscious effort to learn our own history because of how intense the effort was to stamp all of that knowledge out. Part of our personal journeys, our, our healing journeys is what we call it. And that's kind of a term I used a lot in Native country is that people refer to their life journey as a healing journey because we're healing from the negative impacts of colonialism, which colonialism brought a, a disconnection from the land. And when Native people are disconnected from their land bases, because we're land-based culture, the land curates our culture. The land is what dictates how we eat and, and what animals that are, are closest to us that are revered um, spiritually for what they provide for us as food or a shelter or a relative, uh, plants, animals that, or excuse me, plants that we forage seeds that we plant, you know, all, when those are disconnected from a people and then also brought in is a, was a Western religious ideology as well that would further separate the people and then also cause disarray amongst, amongst the social structures. So all of these things right here, that's what creates trauma and grief. And then one generation onto another, then we see that intergenerational trauma. So part of our, our healing journeys is we, our parents' generation revitalized a lot. And so for our journey is to take what was brought for us while we were growing up, but also to find out what was what is no longer being practiced, but still lives within the memories and the know-how of a lot of knowledge keepers and elders in our community. And in, in, in our own family, we've revitalized some practices, particularly around around birth, around how we act during pregnancy. There's lots of teachings and protocols around that. And those are some things that we would hear growing up a lot, but we don't see it practiced because even our own people have been influenced a lot from dominant culture or Western, uh, you know, Western medicine. And, and so some of these things are no longer being practiced. So part of our healing journey is, is really revitalizing those and making those the norm for our daughters and, and all other children of this generation. 
And the idea is that the next generation will implement more until we become more whole, more connected um, to the land, to one another, to uh, the animal plant nations, and to uh, the, the spirit, spiritual presence of, of, of everything. So, you know, those are some parts of, of our journey with that. And um, that comes from what you had talked about, you know, that, that erasure of our, of our culture and identity. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I have like three things from that that I want to dive into. But the, <laughs> and one of them is going to be the pregnancy aspect, given that I am currently pregnant and I am planning a home birth. So I am on that holistic route. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A. Then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content, since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher-focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? (laughs) They have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, HIIT classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I wanted to go back and 
just ask, kind of scratch my own itch because it's something that I'm wondering face how I'm going to face having children, knowing what I know, knowing the things I know are kind of different, very different than the things they teach in school. How did your families or your cultures handle that? Did you know when you were in school being taught certain things, did you know them at that time to be untrue or did you have to find out later and sort of unravel those untruths? I would say most of it was kind of an an unraveling that happened later on as you get older. Um, When you're a kid, I think for me, being one of the only Native American students in a predominantly um, white school, it was just uh, dealing with like the racist comments that I would hear. I grew up in North Dakota, so Native American people are the most predominant minority there. And so any racism or discrimination that I heard tended to be about my people. And it was just a matter of being frustrated and not understanding how to respond to that or um, not having the knowledge to, or the right to be proud of myself and proud of who I was. And so I think my parents, when I would come home with those sort of days, they would just be very measured and very calm about it and just do their best to sort of give me a boost of confidence and tell me what they knew that could sort of help me get through those moments. And then it would be later on when I was in high school more so where I started to really read not just about Native American culture, but about social justice movements in general. Like I remember reading the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was probably 15 or 16, and it totally changed my life. And I then I started reading about the Red Power movement that happened alongside the civil rights movement with leaders like Russell Means and Dennis Banks and Anime Aquash and uh, Leonard Peltier. And um, from there, I just started to take a deep dive into many different texts that taught about alternative histories, um, which I guess we could say are more like real histories that are just left out of the textbooks. Mm-hmm. I you know, know I hate that we have to say alternative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Like alternative health is another big right. thing. I'm just like, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> I agree with you there for sure. Yeah. And for, for me, it was kind of because um, our, our reservation, a lot of our students, we all got busted to go to school in town. And then later on, we would get a, a school on our, on our community, not until like the early and mid 90s. But when I first started going to elementary school in the, the late 80s, we were bust into town and there was always confusion for me because growing up in my community, going to community gatherings and um, being raised in the way that we are as native people, we, we go into school and then they start talking about Thanksgivings and there's pilgrims and Indians talk. And, and, you know, for me, I guess it was always sort of confusing. And as, even as a child, like I didn't know what to make of it because I'd come back to the community and then you'd hear, you'd be at a gathering. And I remember even just being a child and hearing cultural leaders and elders talk about, the colonization of our land and talk about, you know, how the celebration of Columbus Day is, is, is wrong. So there would be, but there confusion, but you know, as you, as you, as you're a child and you're in these classes, you just go along with it because you, you're, again, you're the minority, mm-hmm. you know, you're the minority. So these things, you know, I have vivid memories of this. I don't remember a lot of elementary, but I remember sitting there and having to make my headdress and wear it. And I thought, well, I'm going to choose to be the Indian because that's what I am. Yeah. And you have those memories. And now I think back now just how disturbing and wrong that is. <laughs> yeah. I would never, ever yeah. allow any of our daughters or any of our Native children or any school to partake in that if I could. And there's that's still happening, unfortunately, today. But, you know, if that stuck in my mind from all the years, you know, to me that there's something there, there's some sort of, of a different uh, trauma that that's there that we don't 
usually perceive as trauma because it's, it's, it's confusion and it's there. It's sort of like pending for a lot of years until you start gaining the, the knowledge in the worldview to understand, you know, how wrong that was and how wrong that is on behalf of that public school system. Yeah, I was, um, I have, actually have a picture of me as uh, Sakakawea in our school uh, play in second grade. And I was the only native student in like school. It was awkward. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember at the time thinking it was, uh, I agreeing with it. Like, of course I'm Chicago way. I'm the only native girl, but at the same time, I, I do remember also feeling very weird about it. So, yeah. yeah. It's such a interesting world that we live in. I am very in tune with as much as I can be and still have unlimited things to learn. And I, it's leading my family to want to homeschool. So we're going to do everything that we can to homeschool. Right now, my oldest is only 19 months. So I've got time to think about it, but I'm already part of the homeschool community in my little town and going on little field trips and things like that. But yeah. it's just, for me, the deeper you dig, the more you realize that it's it's hard to even for me, it's hard to even trust when there's like a book or there's a gathering and it's like, oh, cool. People are waking up to this. And then you dig deeper and you're like, oh, guess who's funding this whole movement? The exact people who started the problem in the beginning. Who can yeah. I even trust around this? And so I love being able to talk to people like you that are authentic, that grew up in this area, that know what you're talking about. Because so often it's so amazing how many advocates we have for things these days. But a lot of times you see advocacy groups that are all privileged white people. And it's like, where are you even getting your information from at this point? Like at least have a, like a spokesperson or somebody to like <laughs> source your info from so you know what you're saying. But one of the things that you said is that settler, settler colonialism is at the root of a lot of our health challenges. Yeah. But even the ones that we face today, how is this still affecting us? Well, if we look at to what I what I call the diseases of modernity, all the cardiovascular disease, all the metabolic disorders, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and you know cancer, the level of of, of addiction today, anxiety, depression, the level of that, and how that's so prominent today. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people in dominant culture they're constantly scratching their heads and asking why is there a high incidence of this in the recent years in Western developed countries like the United States and Canada. But for us as Native people, we see it clearly that that not only have Indigenous people been negatively impacted by industrialization and the globalization of certain products and ideas, but so have all of the descendants of the original settlers. And we see these, we see the, the prominence of these diseases from, from this age of convenience, this age of plenty that we are living in today, that not just us as Indigenous people are suffering from a high prevalence of you know type 2 diabetes, but really people worldwide are. And I think that that the diseases of them, themselves are the physical manifestations of this, the physical manifestations of, of this out of balance where people are, all people in Western developed countries are experiencing a, a disconnection a true disconnection to the land that they're living upon and a connection to the land that one is living upon entails a foodways, foraging, hunting, fishing, planting food, and then doing that with family um, together on the land. So there, there's three circles right there. You got your food, we have circle of community, family, and circle of connection to the land. With, with the absence of those, we, we're seeing the depression, we're seeing anxiety, type two diabetes, obesity and such. We're seeing all that, and, and that's really across this country and other places, Western developed 
countries like, such as Canada. And the disconnection of land and seeing the land as something separate than you, seeing the land as something that can be conquered and, and regulated and managed has, has fostered this disconnect in people's minds, not just in urban areas, but even in rural areas. And so I think that, you know, that's that's been a, one of one of the many factors, I think, behind how colonialism has impacted uh, people worldwide and, and affected their health. We have been looking into all of the ways to possibly grow our own food and to be more self-sufficient. And it feels like there's a great barrier to entry. <laughs> it does feel like there's yeah. so much to learn. I live in California right now. <laughs> it's hard to afford enough land for most people here to even gr- grow a garden that feeds your family, okay. let alone have animals. And we also have land in Michigan. And it's actually sort of a dream situation where it's uh, over 100 acres that's all split between family members. So they actually have okay. that community there. But no one's been the like the manager that goes in and it's like, okay, we all need to come together. Like a few of them have their own gardens, you know? <laughs> and like, it's like, but look at all this land right here. Let's just create the community garden, the community animals. Because doing it on your own, all of that, there's so many things to think about. And one of my cousins who's doing that is uh, uh, she has goats and chickens and I'm like, so how far off are you from being self-sustainable? And she was like, really far off. She's like, we have to order the grain from here. We got to do this. And, and, and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's like facets that you don't even consider. And it's so interesting to think about that people just sort of settled on land and built homes and were able to be self-sufficient and grow things. Whereas why is it that somebody else can have land nowadays but they're still ordering uh, online for, for the grain to feed the animals. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. it's, we're just so disconnected. Yeah. And then once you get into that, once you start learning, okay, now I need to learn about soil health and learn about nutrients that go in the soil and, and where am I going to get this water and, you know, all sorts of other things that come into to, to planting seeds and, and taking care of it. And then the time it requires and, even the land, like you said, the land, the cost of, of health care for animals, if they're going to be you know, raising animals, then you start seeing all these issues are systemic. And, it, and then it's no wonder why many people are disconnected from, from this, these life ways and are dependent upon dominant society. We're dependent upon Amazon, the grocery store, you know, all these means that are you know, taxing the environment. And, and how, how long can we do this? You know, how sustainable are these, these, these ways of acquiring our household needs and our food and such? And you just see, again, the systemic, you know, issues and the privatization of like large swaths of land that make it inaccessible for other people to be able to, to, to use it to, to sustain themselves. Then again, that I think to me that points back to this, this idea that well, colonialism has taken away a, a lot from everybody, not really just indigenous people. So... And it, for me, this is sort of just pointing this out. I'm, I don't, I'm not claiming to have a solution, but it's something more people, I think, a dominant society should think about. I agree. I am very conscious of, you know, our water supply. I'm like, really, they're putting this in our water and and then our soil's depleted. And I we seek out things like grass-fed meat and pasture-raised chicken and and organic food. And then you see there's 
studies that come out and it's like, oh, even people that eat wholly organic still have glyphosate in their systems. And it just feels like you can't win. But I loved this quote that you mentioned from uh, one of your, one of the elders in, in uh, the indigenous culture from Wilma Mankiller, who said, who made the conscious choice to lead a meaningful life by building on the positive attributes of her communities instead of focusing on the daunting set of economic and social problems. And I had to highlight that because mm. it's so easy to be overwhelmed by all the things that are wrong around us because it's still a problem today, clearly. And all we can really do is focus on the things that we can do and build on the positive attributes and and really focus on well, what do we have here? What what have we been able to pass down? And the fact that you guys have been able to explore uh, other tribes and and cultures and and see that wow, a lot of your teachings, despite all of the efforts to abolish them, they've still they're still alive today and beginning to thrive even more because of as you said the work that the generation before you did, and so. Mm-hmm. I want to kind of get into some of those positive attributes because there's so many things. And the first thing that I wanted to touch on, though, is another point that you made is that allies often ask, how can they help Indian country? And your answer is, you can't help us, but you can learn from us. Why is it that that's the best way to help? Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund, minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. allies often ask, how can they help Indian country? And your answer is, you can't help us, but you can learn from us. Why is it that that's the best way to help? I think that's the best way because because of the fact that we have experienced genocide, both actual genocide and cultural genocide. Our populations are significantly less. I think we make up about 2% of America. There's a lot of people that don't know any Native people or know anything about 
any native culture because of that. And because of, um, the fact that our knowledge systems and our teachings and our wisdom has been so marginalized and our people have been so horribly stereotyped. It starts with being able to acknowledge that we carry knowledge just as much as any other person from any other culture does, that we carry wisdom, that we carry teachings that help and contribute and make a difference in the world. And that are not only interesting, but are things that people need in order to live a good life. You know, every group of people has systems of knowledge and ways of knowing that are important and that contribute to the well-being of the world, Indigenous people included. And so I think for a lot of people, if you only look at us as this marginalized group that's pitiful and that needs help, then that's not showing respect to our full humanity or to our full offering and the gifts that we have and the wisdom that we carry. So as soon as that clicks for people, whoa, I actually have a lot to learn from Native people and Native culture, then we can begin to have a conversation because then we're respecting each other human to human. Well, I love that because it's so true. And we don't even realize how often we've been sort of conditioned to look down upon people that are different than us sometimes. And I think a lot of the times we don't really even know that we're doing it unless somebody highlights that or says, make sure you're looking at me in this way. Like I hold wisdom. And (laughs) for for some reason, I have another voice in my head that's like, probably more than the rest of you guys. (laughs) You've all all lost it. But the main message in your book is is around these interconnected seven circles of food, movement, sleep, ceremony, sacred space, land, and community. But you start out talking about the symbolism of the medicine wheel. Tell us about that. So we always like to acknowledge that um, we arrived at this, you know, we created the seven circles as two individuals who came together and doing wellness work in the last 10 years. But uh, so the seven circles itself is not an ancient model, but the ancestral part of it is the idea of viewing things in a cyclical and interconnected way. That is a part of many different indigenous nations, ways of knowing and teaching that are ancient. And one representation comes from the Northern Plains area um, and it's called a medicine wheel. And that is an ancient symbol It's a circle divided into four parts, and each part represents mental, physical, spiritual, and emotional self. So growing up, having seen that symbol everywhere from, you know, ceremonial regalia to even brochures in my mom's office because she worked in Indian education. It's a symbol that um, uh, many, it it started in, you know, uh, Sioux culture, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, but it is a symbol that a lot of tribes today actually use to represent um, our understanding of interconnection and our understanding of balance and that we have these four different parts. And it also acknowledges the four directions. And then each color of the medicine wheel, red, black, yellow, and white represents different animal nations or plant nations or different life-giving elements that come from the different directions. So all that is to say Growing up seeing the medicine wheel as such a powerful teaching tool for me to understand the way that my ancestors viewed life and viewed the world as an interconnected place, that helped me to understand health 
today and how to live a good life today because the key piece is that interconnection and that sense of balance as opposed to perfection. And that is, I think, one thing that is missing from not just mainstream wellness, but from the Western world in general, where everything is put into lists or pillars or boxes. I mean, even the homes that we live in and the schools that we're educated in, are everything is divided into boxes and squares and departments and categories. So interconnection, I think, is something that is a visual tool and a world worldview that can really help a lot of people understand why does their movement impact their sleep, which impacts their food, which impacts, you know, all of these other areas of our life. Yeah. And just thinking about the compartmentalization of many aspects in in dominant society, I think that that also also trickles down and that has an effect on people's thought processes. In about about everything. And that's why we see, well, there's mental health. There's always such an, a thing on mental health. We see that, you know, dominant society, I watch on the news, they say back when the opioid crisis happened, they're looking at mental health. Now it's a gun violence. They're always bringing up mental health, but there's so much more to it. There's the spiritual uh, presence that, that, that our, our consciousness is connected to a powerful source that is in everything, you know, it's in the grass, it's it's in the wind, it's even in the astros, it's in our, our bodies at a cellular level. And so I think that it's, this is sort of our contribution to dominant cultures in, in encouraging everyone to think and see the interconnectedness between all aspects in our life, between you and people, between the natural world, between even the spiritual presence that is in each and every one of us that has, gives us life, the spiritual presence that's in sunlight, it's in air, it's in our cells, um, you know, all of our cells. Everything moves in a cycle, right? Everything is cyclical in our body, to our mitochondria, to the seasons, to the earth. Everything is circular and interconnected. And that's why we made that seven circles there, circular. And if, if you were to imagine seven circles, you've got food, you have, you know, there's a circle and they're branching outward. One direction is food, another is sleep, sacred space, movement, ceremony, connection to land, connection to people, all those are branching out in different directions. And if you move one, if you wiggle one, you're going to wiggle the whole thing there. And at the center of that circle is you, the, the person, and you're made up of a spiritual, physical, mental, emotional state, all inextricably connected. And if the person sticks their arms out, then they make a circle around themselves. And within that circle is sort of, I guess, a, you can say, you know, a philosophical idea of a circle that's around you. And there's people inside of it, like all of our loved ones, people you cherish, people you live with. People whose your healing journey has an effect on them. They're in that first circle. And then that outer circle is, is the greater community you're connected with. Say everyone, all the other families in your, your kids' homeschool community. That's community right there. Beyond that would be the greater world at large. So we're all interconnected. And, and the healing journeys of, of everyone, each and every one of us, has an effect on those around us and closest to us and has this ripple effect outward. So we like to encourage everyone to think about this it's, it's many layers. It's, it's, it's spiritual, physical, mental, emotional. It's you, family, community. It's you, um, your home. It's natural world. It's spiritual world. It's all these, these layers, you know, that are sort of mashed together that we like to encourage everyone to think in those terms. I love the visual or not just love the visual, but I really connect to that source, God, universe, however you want to visualize it for yourself, whatever resonates for the individual. And the life force that's within everything. I feel like I spent so many years unlearning 
the vision of God that I learned growing up. I was yeah. raised Christian and it's not something that I align with anymore, although my parents do. And so I just always felt disconnected with that. And I think that's by design where, you know, it's like this thing separate from you. You are nothing without this. And there's truth to that, but you've got to know a deeper aspect of it. Like you have to understand what that really means. And that visual of like a man in the sky takes it away from me. It's hard to really connect that if it wasn't for my searching and understanding and broader spiritual philosophies, I don't think I would have that connection that I do today. And and I can feel it deepening with every year and also with more intention. And this last year, especially the last six months, I've just really deepened my spiritual connection. I just decided like what would happen? Like I have these beliefs. I've studied all these things. I have a knowing and a belief what would happen if I began each day with gratitude to God, to source, if I blessed my meals, if I was having a moment where I realized I was too in my head and I let it go and just decided to turn to my spirituality in that moment. And I've just been re- going really hard on it. <laughs> like, I guess not hard's not the right word because it's more like dissolving into peace, but uh, yeah. I've been really putting it at the focus of my attention. And I have been so calm this pregnancy this and like so at peace despite the fact that a bunch of things have happened the pregnancy itself has been pretty difficult and i think part of that is this willingness where i went a long time kind of raging against the system and being like everything i learned was wrong <laughs> and then now <laughs> now i'm just like okay, what is there for me? And I can be in a conversation with somebody and they might have a very strong opinionated belief of something that I just don't believe anymore. But I'll sit there and and I'll think, well, what's in this for me anyways? You know, like what what is there to receive? And I really loved the visual that you guys added about uh, fool's crow hollow, it's hard to say fool's crows, fool's crows Mm. hollow bone theory. Tell us about that. So Fool's Crow was um, a medicine man and uh, a Sundance chief. Sundance is a ceremony that comes from um, the Northern Plains region as well, Lakota, Dakota, and Lakota people, and then a lot of other nations today practice it as well. But he was instrumental in my own lineage in that my dad, after being raised in the Catholic Church, um, found uh, you know Fool's Crow's Sundance and was able to relearn and reconnect to our Lakota spirituality when the Catholic church wasn't working for him anymore. And I should mention that during the 1960s, 70s, 80s, that was a huge period of reclamation for native people all around native country who were reconnecting and letting go of that fear and that trauma that they were raised in after being literally having our culture beaten out of them by these religious systems. And uh, so anyway, my dad was just one part of of that. I mean, there was thousands of Native people across the country reconnecting to their spirituality at that time, which is the reason why I was able to be raised with my own. So anyway, Fool's Crow says that everybody is a hollow bone. You can visualize yourself as a hollow bone or um, a vessel which teachings can work through and creator works through you and if you live your life in a certain way 
you're able to accept and to pass on good teachings and good ways of life. You know, if you demonstrate good values, then you can receive the things and pass them on that allows you to live in balance and to live happy and good life. Um, and we're all hollow bones and what are we taking in and how are we passing that on? And that's really up to us. And um, nobody is above or below any anyone else. We're all equal and we're all just common people. And, um, you know, if there's any power, quote unquote, it's, um, it's within us and it's within our ability to practice good values and to absorb good teachings. Yeah, I, I just really like that because one of my focuses this year also has been just shifting in the way I see my growth. And so when I first started, it was all about, you know, leveling up my character, seeing how many skills I could pack in, just being as awesome as possible, probably to be better than other people. And then uh, now just, I think with help from my spiritual path, I'm really just seeing that as the means of change. Whereas I thought change was forcing things before, now it's being and allowing and just trusting that the way that my energy resonates is what's creating the change. And if I'm holding that, then yes, I might be inspired to action and inspired to do things. It's not just about sitting around and doing nothing, but I think it comes from a really different place and it feels differently to me when I'm actually going at it. But I know that for a lot of people, they're so set in their ways or they're so conditioned or indoctrined, however you want to look at it, with the typical Western way of life that even talking to them about something like, oh, well, these food ingredients are kind of poison or something like that, like, or avoiding this or going more towards holistic type foods or, or eating more from nature. It just feels so daunting. Like there's too much in front of them. And so then they make no changes. But I found Standing Bear's Law of Self-Mastery helpful for this. Can you tell us about that? I found Standing Bear's Law of Self-Mastery helpful for this. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So Luther Standing Bear was another cultural leader who was alive uh, also in the late 1800s and early 1900s around that transformational time. He states that there's no glory in having power over other people, but there's great honor in having control over ourselves. And so I found that really useful embarking on my own wellness journey. And I think about it almost every day because kind of like you were talking about earlier, there is a lot in this world that we can't control mm -hmm. and we shouldn't even want to control too much outside of our own circle because, um, you know, who are we to do that? And I think that when we're able to sort of let that go, then we're able to melt away a lot of our stress and a lot of our worry and, um, you know, kind of trust the process and, and trust other folks to sort of get on their own healing journeys. And, and if we focus on self-mastery or just as opposed to feeling like, okay, I have to follow all these rules that X, Y, and Z entity puts out. Otherwise I'm going to go to hell or otherwise I, um, you know, otherwise I am not the perfect person following this diet or whatever it may be. If we let go of kind of those type of frameworks and instead we just say, 
to, you know, we talk to our spouse or we talk to our kids and we say, what are our values? How do we want to be? What kind of an elder do I want to be? What kind of a life do I want to live? And what are my rules for how I need to lead my life on a day-to-day basis in order to kind of get there? And you set your own standards and your own values and guidelines, then suddenly it's not such a chore anymore to approach health and wellness. Then it is a really exciting and authentic journey that comes from within. So I believe that's what the self, the law of self-mastery really entails. Yeah, I found it so helpful because it does seem like we're tackling so many different things. It's like, oh, this is the specific thing for my mind. This is a specific thing for my body. But the more you learn or the more I've learned, as we talked about earlier, everything is connected. And so the act of gardening isn't just learning to garden so you can have carrots and just this one small (laughs) aspect of your life. It's also as Thosh said earlier, where you're, you've got the community where you're, you might be having a garden with family members or you're connecting to the land. You're also mastering self. You're creating patience. You're, I learned a long time ago that your body will digest food differently the deeper you are in the process of preparing that food. And so whether it's just buying it from a grocery store, cooking it is is still at an extra level where you're cooking your own food versus Uber Eats. <laughs> and yep. But then Absolutely. going even further back and growing your own food and and being a part of that process as well. And so this interconnectedness is not just good for your gut or whatever you think that you're healing by eating better food. It's good for your mind. It's good for your spirit. It's good for your soul and your connection with family. And another teaching that I found really interesting with indigenous culture is around moving with and through our emotions. And I talk about that a lot. It's something that I think the wellness community is is becoming more in tune with. But what set it apart with what you guys were teaching is that different types of movement actually do elicit different emotional responses. Can you go deeper on that? Absolutely. Because I think we're so conditioned in mainstream wellness to think of like a yoga is a peaceful exercise or boxing is an aggressive exercise or, or we think about things like yoga as the only form of spiritual exercise and everything else is just straight, you know, gym bro kind of stuff (laughs) or just mechanical and exactly athletics but in reality every type of movement is can be a spiritual practice every type of movement has really does elicit different emotional responses and that's going to be different for every individual but I think it's so important for people to realize that because we do have different emotions as the days and the hours go by and different things come our way in life. And so if what a powerful tool movement can be if we learn which of these different movements um, impact our emotional and mental health in different ways. So for example, for me, you know, when I hit the heavy bag and box, or if I use like a, a weighted medicine ball in the gym and I do and I do work with that, that's a, re- a huge stress relief. It's a relief of anger. It's a release of stress. And so um, it's not that you're telling yourself you shouldn't have those emotions, but it's cultivating tools that allow you to process or 
release those emotions in healthy ways. And so I think we can all use different modalities of movement and practice different modalities of movement, not just for their physical benefits, but because they have diverse benefits to our mental health. And, and like what Chelsea said earlier about, you know, any movement practice can be a spiritual practice. And that all happens in the mind, I think, regardless of whatever modality one settles upon. But the practice coming into the mind is that, that the body is a gift, whatever you're giving thanks for what health that you have, not thinking about what health you don't have, but not thinking about the body for the looks, but what my body does. I'm grateful today for my legs because they carry me everywhere. I'm, I'm moving my, my body with the purpose of giving thanks for it. And your mind is clear, you're breathing, you're focused, you're going inside the body and you're feeling the body. You're feeling as the legs become stronger, you're feeling as your whatever energy systems you're training might increase, such as your power output, your speed, you know, your agility, strength. And that's going inside and giving thanks for what the body is capable of and what the body is, is able to do based on that movement. So you're, and essentially I always like to say sometimes too, that when, when you attach a greater cause for training, physical movement, say for instance, it's to be well for my family. So I can be strong to carry my kids around. So I can be strong to get into the garden, have no problem picking things up from the ground. I have no problem hiking far into the mountains for a hunt or foraging. I have no problem doing that because I train and I, and, and I, I train to do this thing. So all of my training regimen and, and whatever I do, whether I'm doing strength training, whether I'm jogging, sprinting, or playing some kind of sport and doing yoga, I'm doing dance. They're all increasing my cardiovascular output, my, my, my overall strength and my movement patterns. So I can do these things. So my entire regimen is a lot to allow me to live life to the fullest and to give thanks for the body as I'm doing it, to give thanks for what health that I have. So if there's like a greater purpose in that purpose for movement, which is for your health and wellness, to be there for family, community, to be able to participate, you know, wholeheartedly and be there and be present and be well for that, then it becomes a spiritual practice, regardless of whatever modality is, is being utilized to achieve that. And I think that that's something too that we like to encourage everyone to think about. I had a pretty severe eating disorder for a little over a decade and I had to do so much work around not viewing my body as, or exercise especially, because I mean, if you have something like an eating disorder, chances are you're also over-exercising and all of the other things, just beating mm -hmm. my body into submission really. And I did a lot of work for years focusing on, on just those thoughts of like thanking my body. And it was so, so healing, mm. but I unlocked a whole nother aspect when I had a child. Like that's when I was like, oh, this is what my body was made for. And, and, and I've been able to carry that through even when I'm not pregnant of like, yeah, hiking up a mountain and just being like, I'm so thankful that my body is carrying me through these woods right now that I'm able to do this, that I, yeah. that I can feel, you know, like I think I view my existence as something that my soul came here for on purpose. And so, and so as hard as this life can feel sometimes, it's like, well, why did my soul want to come? You know, there must be something good. Like maybe this is my mm -hmm. only chance to really feel into my body, like to really taste food, to really feel the embrace of a hug or to like feel my feet in dirt beneath me, things like that. And, and we skip over it so often. We, we don't even 
understand what it means to be connected. I remember one moment I was like, it was last pregnancy. I was having a really hard time. And I just like, all I had in my mind were complaints. I wasn't feeling good. And I had this moment of just like washing dishes and and being like, how can I see this from a higher perspective? And it was like a spiritual moment of like feeling the warm water and the soap running off my hands. And I'm like, what if I had just spent... 20 years in jail or locked up in prison overseas. And I got out and I was able to wash the dishes, not I have to wash the dishes. Wouldn't this feel so much differently? And so I'm able to tap into that now. But it took like a moment. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's that I asked and and then I received. But so many people don't even know what it feels like to feel connected to the land around them. And that's something that I'm deepening as well, living in nature. I feel like it's still cracking open, but there's still so much work to do. When was the first time you really remember feeling connected to land or to nature or feeling that kind of unlocked in a way that's not typically taught by society? You know, I kind of write about this too in my personal stories in the book with that section in the chapter, Connection to Land. And I think, um, if I had to really think about a time that I kind of had dawned on me about how important the land or how much reverence that we have for the land or why we as a community always did things outside and on the land. I think that if I had to remember that too, it was probably like 12 or 13, I was younger when one of our ceremonies take places, takes place um, near the convergence of two rivers. And there was a medicine person that chose that area because they said that the convergence of those two rivers were were very powerful. It's very sacred, very very special place, and they didn't say much more about it. But as I got older, I I realized that the convergence of those two rivers, because our people are the Anahuacamaria Autumn, the Salt River people, and the river was our lifeline. And when it was taken away, pretty much dammed up by the state in the the uh, early 1900s. We, that's when we seen the we seen the devastating trickle uh, ripple uh, uh, excuse me the downstream effect that it had on the health of the people there and that's when we've seen a high prevalence of type two diabetes because the people were no longer able to yield that water to their fields to 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 plant all of the, f- the foods that they've been planting for thousands of years our people did um, agriculture long before the settlement and so they were unable to access that water. So that's one reason why I realized later on that they said that that area was very special and very powerful. And we should have our gathering by there because you're, you're, you're gaining that power and you're gaining that understanding. But, but as a kid listening to them talk about that and then kind of looking at the river in a new sense, because before that, most of the time we attended the river was for like recreational. We have, we have a section on the reservation where it's only open to just us, us uh, 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 citizens of our, of our nation, our community. And so for me, that was always every summers, you know, our family would pile up and go to the river and go with other families, meet there, and we'd have our gatherings there and we'd have, uh, you know, social gatherings and such. It was fun. But when we started, when my parents started bringing us back into the ceremonies, then we would have a lot of those things there on the land. So for me, it was like a realization, like, oh, I was looking, I remember it was dawn, the sun was coming up. I remember just looking again over over the land because we're at a high point and just admiring the beauty of it and seeing it differently. But as we get older, then we start, you know, in the recent years, like in the past, like 10 years, when we started really started to bring back our a lot of our food ways, then there was another level of understanding about 
foodways and, and, and coming from the land and connecting to the land at a deeper level and seeing food is not just something as nutritional value, but seeing food is, is something that connects us to the land there. And we're learning all about the land around us, the, you know, how it's all interconnected the natural world from the microorganisms in the soil to the seasons that the, the effect the seasons have on the plants and, you know, the animals and their migration and such like that. But when we started getting involved in back in that and foraging, farming, hunting, acquiring our food, then that for me, it was another level of understanding of the importance of food. And that was in the last decade, you know, and then, so the more I get older and we do it and we're sharing it with the daughters, then we kind of also see like another, a new level of it as well. Yeah. For me, it was just uh, times of prayer growing up. Um, and I write about this in the book a little bit too, but you know, I was raised in both like some exposure to Catholicism and then also with my Lakota culture and such a marked difference because every time we prayed in the Catholic side, it was in, you know, under, under a roof, it was within, within the church, within the walls and as a different kind of energy. And then when we prayed for Lakota ceremonies, it was always outside, always outside with uh, incorporating plant medicines and talking about all of the life-giving elements that come from all the different directions and our gratitude for the plant nations and the animal nations and the rain and um, the sun and everything. So just learning to pray that way set me up with my mind, had a clear understanding of that we're connected to this world. We're a part of it. We're not separate from it. And we need all of this stuff that brings us life. We're, you know, we, um, it's our responsibility, but these are also our relatives, all of these different things around us. So that actually tees up perfectly. The final thing I wanted to talk about, because I think a big thing that we've lost that most people don't even really understand what it is these days is reverence. And I know that ceremony is one of your sacred seven circles. And it's interesting to me because uh, a while back, one of my exclusive episodes, 94, I interviewed this woman named Asha Frost, an indigenous woman, and, and she mentioned reverence. And ever since, it kind of stuck with me. And it's one of the ways I've been deeping, deepening my spiritual connection. I go on a lot of walks. I live in nature, so it's all with the trees and the mountains and it's beautiful. And it's just been my goal to deepen my spirituality. And so I've been starting simply where I just actually ask, like, instead of expecting to feel that immediately, I'm, I will ask, like, show me God in this or show me source in this. Let me feel that. Yeah. And it's almost like magic where all of a sudden it's like things start to sparkle, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever taken a little bit of mushrooms, but like <laughs> taking a little bit of mushrooms and then things just start to look a little bit more dimensional and colorful. And and I realized that just in that intention, just in that request, I can sort of unlock that for myself. So it's something I've been playing with. But a lot of us haven't grown up with ceremony passed down or a way to show reverence or, or even connect with the meaning of that word. And so I really love leaving listeners with something to focus on for the week. And I feel like this might be a good one. If they were to bring either ceremony or reverence into their lives, what would be one thing or a way that they could possibly unlock that without the deep history that you guys have or even something that they could adopt if that's not appropriating. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and it is important, you know, that we all kind of establish an authentic connection mm -hmm. and cultural appropriation doesn't help anyone because it's just performative stuff. Right. So we definitely don't encourage like a mimicry or a copying of indigenous ceremonies. And there's a reason why so many of our ceremonies are private and stuff. But when we talk about this ceremony chapter and the ceremony circle within that, there's so much more than that anybody from any walk of life can connect with. And for me, the main answer that I, the first thing that comes to mind is I would say silence. We live in a very, very noisy world today, visually noisy, audibly noisy, energy wise, it's noisy. There's, it's, you know, we need to actively find time to quiet our minds and to quiet our surroundings and to get comfortable with silence again. And when I read so many historical texts and when I speak to elders from many different tribal nations, they all say the same thing about, and I think that people from non-native cultures would say this too, is that life was quieter and there was more peace before um, the infiltration of technology in every single thing that we do. And people today can't even go five minutes without looking at their iPhone. And that is a real problem. So to be able to disconnect, to be able to sit in silence, and you don't have to do anything but that. You don't even have to call it meditation if you don't want to, because for some people, even that sounds intimidating. Just say to yourself, silence, no noise right now. And it's okay if your children are making noise, and it's okay if you know you, you hear things outside or whatever, but to, to the degree you can, to find time for silence and to be comfortable with that, that's a big step that a lot of people, um, it would change their lives if they would embark upon incorporating that into every day. Yeah, and you know, I like that you bring up reverence and that's really important to, to recognize that. And reverence is at the core of ceremony. We do ceremony because we have reverence. Ceremony is the action of acknowledging the spiritual reverence things in our world, whether it be family, kinship, whether it be seasons, whether it be the great spiritual source of, of energy that's in all things, or acknowledging the food that you're about to eat, even if you didn't prepare that food yourself, that food somehow still came to you in some way and hands still had a part in it getting to you. So having reverence is, is, is the core and ceremony is the gesture that's associated with showing that reverence there. And so I think that it's it's important for everyone to understand too that there's many different types of ceremony, right? There's ceremony we do by yourself, such as what Chelsea talked about. That's essentially what solo ceremony is doing that by yourself. There's ceremony we do just with family, just with those that are within your, your sacred circle. Then there's family we do with community, large for a certain purpose when there's several minds and hearts that are there for the same cause, the same purpose, whatever that may be, there's different types of ceremony, you know, and I already listed the different types of things we honor with ceremony, the, the giving of birth, the passing of death, the, the puberty, the coming of age of, of, of children to adults, the, the, the uniting of two people to honor the seasonal changes, the celestial events. And we encourage everyone to, to yes, you can revitalize and you can make that, even if you weren't raised with that, it's a human thing to acknowledge these things. Long before industrialization, long before Western religious was used as a way to control people, people all across the world 
conducted ceremony in this sense since the dawn of time. And people can come back to that. People can find what what is ceremony for them and how do they practice that in their own way without appropriating. Like Chelsea said, if we're appropriating from other cultures, then it becomes performative. They're they're simply going through the motions without the understanding of why the ceremony is happening, what the intent is, what the desired outcome is, and for who. And so those are the really important elements, too, of the ceremony. Why is this being done? What's the outcome? And who is it being done for? And where is it being done for? So I think people can ask themselves that, and they can revitalize that. They should give themselves the power to revitalize what that is for them. And then that can become family tradition, you know, for the next generation. But I think people can start simply by going outside. And like Chelsea said, abstaining from using technology, and taking some time to acknowledge, look at the sights, the sounds, use your use your six senses. What do you see outside? What do you hear outside? What do you feel beneath your feet? What textures do you feel? What can you taste around? Can you taste the air? What, what, what do you what do you smell? What does everything smell like? And what is the overall spiritual feeling of that? And that's, I think, a way, good way of being present and being mindful of those surroundings and turning off technology, quieting the mind and just breathing, acknowledging air is a gift. Someone can do that for themselves there and just make that a, make that something that they do regularly. And, and then they do that with the family, too. I think something as simple as that, that's ceremony. And that's a good way, I think, for people to kind of get introduced into this, this other, this having this reverence, you know, and seeing themselves as part of this network and not some, not separate from it. Yeah. And then finally, I would just say that in the book, you know, we write a lot about elevating from routine to ritual. So there are so many routines that we have in our life that actually, if we just incorporate a little bit of extra attention, um, those can then become rituals, which is, again, a form of ceremony that I think is, you know, within everybody's cultural background. And those can be very healing for us as well. So like, a bedtime routine, but turn it into a ritual by sort of adding something that feels a little bit more special for you or your family. Um, that kind of thing is is how we incorporate ceremony into our day-to-day life. I have a morning ritual. It's about two hours long. It's my favorite time of the day, but yeah, I love great. those explanations because I've always had like a deep respect for indigenous cultures, even learning the false history back in the day. <laughs> I remember being like, wow, how amazing would that be? And I've always had like this kind of inner longing, like, oh, I wish I would have grown up like that. Like living off the land, foraging, things like that is just always called to me. And so the point made about like, you know, just adopting these things and and how that's appropriating it makes so much sense because it's like, but why? <laughs> like the, the inner child in me is like, but why? I just want to be like you. <laughs> but the thing is, is that connection to source is available to everyone. And so yeah. the way that these rituals and ceremonies were created originally was because people took the time to connect personally and to ask what they should do and to develop these things. And that is available to all of us. What is our connection to source inspiring us to do? How do we feel called to connect to the land? How do we feel called to pray or meditate or however you visualize being in silence and connecting to that greater power and making it a mission to develop that rather than just 
learning and copying from other people because that's going to be such a deeper connection than anything right. that you mm-hmm. that you copy from, you know, a checklist in a book or or seeing other people do. And so, thank you so much for bringing this wisdom to us because there's there's just so much in it. There's all of the seven circles we can go so much deeper into. And so for listeners that are interested in doing that deep dive, where is the best place for them to connect to find your work and your book? Thank you so much. Anyone can find our work at wellforculture.com, which is our website. And from there, you can also find links to where to purchase our book, which is called The Seven Circles, Indigenous Teachings for Living Well. It's also available to view um, the links to purchase are uh, through the HarperCollins website. And um, you can find me on Instagram at chelsea.moves. And you can find Thosh on Instagram at thosh.collins. And we also have a shared page called Well for Culture. Other than that, we're not too active on any other social media, but we do have a podcast as well. And um, we're just really grateful for anybody who's interested in listening to or reading our book. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 268. Your challenge for this week is to play with reverence. I know those two words don't go together very often because reverence seems so serious and play is so playful. But I think they can both happen at once and it might be the best way to do it in general because it's combining two energies that bring forth the spirit in my beliefs. Play is that high vibrational energy where you feel lit up and alive while not taking yourself too seriously. Whereas reverence has a solemnness to it, but it doesn't necessarily need to be so serious. I think that the earth wants us to play. To roll in the grass and hear children laughing is one of the ways to show reverence. And so instead of seeing reverence as this seriousness, see it as an honor, as choosing to honor what the earth is giving you, what your life is giving you, what spirit is giving you, what God is giving you, if that's how you connect to that higher power. For a long time, I couldn't even say God, I would feel resistance, but I've been practicing leaning into it. So you might hear me use God more often, but source, spirit, the universe, whatever calls to you. All of those names or labels were part of my evolution and I continue to evolve. So right now I'm working with God, but use whatever works for you. So ask for guidance on how you can show that reverence. Maybe it's blessing your food. Maybe it's saying a prayer. Maybe it's just saying thank you to the earth. What does it mean to you? Play with that this week and let me know how it goes. For bonus karma points, take a photo of this reverence and mention this episode. Share it with people because I think that reverence is what we really need to heal the planet rather than all of the government plans and interferences that are often more in the best interest of those serving us the commandments than they are for us. So let me know what you come up with. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or tag me and mindlovepodcasts in your posts. 
If you'd like to support Mind Love, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I love reading those. If you've already left one, thank you so much. If you've left one on one platform and you want to be my best friend or written into my will or something like that, (laughs) copy and paste it into the other platform. It is really helpful to the growth of the show. You can also join Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. I'm making changes that will be starting on January 1st. So get in now, mindlove.com slash premium. You get a whole backlog of over 50 exclusive episodes that are only for premium members. You also get meditations and other bonuses. And you can find all my sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 